ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Outside the box with Jeff Conine. It is Thursday, March 3rd. Of course, he's Jeff Conine. I'm Arm Layton. And Jeff, we said last time we recorded that we were, I was really excited to hear about how the first week or first couple weeks of coaching would go. You couldn't have started much better going, what was it, 4 0 or 5 0 out of the gate? 6 0. 6 0. Screw me. 6 0 out of the <laughs> gate. Uh, you've run into some tough competition with some really good games. You beat Seton Hall, uh, dropped two against Michigan, but two good ball games there as well. This is a really, really good team, as you mentioned, that I think is going to get better as the year goes on. I'm going to go watch uh, this coming Saturday with Griffin. I'm really excited to watch you guys play. But I mean, how fun was that to start your, your coaching career that way? And just in general, how has the experience been so far? Well, you know, you go through the entire fall where you just meet the kids for the first time and uh, you start working with them and and you got to get to know them. You got to get to know their personalities, their swing tendencies, the their work ethic, their personality, everything. Um, and then, you know, you come back after a month and a half long break uh, in December and, and you get to start up again in January and you still got about five weeks before game start. And it's all this, you know, it's all with the NCAA rules. You have very limited time when you first come back. And then you start scrimmaging and that's your only form of competition is scrimmaging against each other. And I just couldn't wait to get somebody else in the other dugout other than our other team. I was tired of watching these guys play against each other. And, um, you know, I've told a number of people probably have told you, I don't know what to compare it to. You know, I think we're good. I think we got a good group of guys. We got a good bunch of offensive players. we got some good arms, but I don't know what to compare it to. So We've had a comparison so far. We're, we're 10 games in right now. We're seven and three. Uh, like you said, we, we ran into a good Michigan team uh, that can really swing the bat well. Uh, we had some control issues on the mound. We walked a lot of guys, uh, but we battled to the very end. You know, we got down big leads in both games, but we battled back. And I think that's going to be a hallmark of this team is a never quit kind of attitude. They're always going to be in it. They're always going to be fighting to the very end. And um, we get that kind of team that, can score a lot in a hurry. We got great team speed, uh, not big time power. Um, you know, we are not going to kill you with the long ball, but, uh, we can bunt, we can run, we can, uh, steal bases, take advantage of mistakes by the team as far as taking extra bases. So it's going to be an exciting team to watch the rest of the year. It's funny. Cause I, I haven't had a chance to watch yet. And, you know, I wasn't going to make any, any strong conclusions based on the way the team plays. Uh, but just looking at the stat sheet, uh, I was going to bring up the stolen bases and just just the bat to ball high contact rate seems like kind of a throwback or old school type of approach that you guys have there. Right. I mean, you're running a lot already 19 for 20 on stolen bases uh, so far this season. And uh, a lot of guys that have just consistently put the ball in play looking at the numbers. Uh, is, do you feel like this is a team that's just going to be scrappy, difficult to to strike out in bunches and you know, kind of making the pitcher work in a lot of ways? Yeah, that's, you know, our, I think our hallmark is going to be pressure on the defense. We're going to put pressure on the defense by, you know, being good base runners and uh, knowing what situations to take the extra bases and putting the ball in play, like you said, and bunting guys over and situational hitting. We work really hard on our situational hitting uh, in order to manufacture runs. And I think that's what we're going to be able to do well is that that manufacture small ball type game. And a really interesting, I would say, wrinkle to college baseball in itself too, right? Is that, uh, you know, your whole big league career, it's all about winning, um, you know, and that's, that's really all it is, right? You're, you're focused on winning and that's the ultimate goal. And that's the same thing in college baseball, but at the same time, you're also focused on the development of these kids. A lot of them have, you know, aspirations of reaching professional baseball. Uh, how do you kind of help? I would guess the best way to put it is just just aid that balance between the two of, you know, 
playing for the team, playing to win. And ultimately I think everybody has that goal while also focus, focusing on the individual improvements and getting to the ultimate goal for these guys as players themselves to, you know, get to where you got ultimately in your career. Well, you got to recognize first what guys on your team are even going to be draft eligible, like not draft eligible, just age wise or or year status in school is do they have the skill set in order to attract a scout to sign them to professional contract? Um, all in all, we, we emphasize 100% every single day, you're playing for the name on the front, not the name on the back. You know, this is a team game. Uh, college coaches are under a tremendous amount of pressure to win nowadays. Uh, the university doesn't care if you're developing young baseball players to be good, scrappy guys. They want exactly. W's. They want W's and L's. So uh, just like professional baseball, college game is is uh, you're winning for the school and they want you to win. So, um, you know, we do whatever we can, obviously, to develop the talent um, that these guys can flourish, hopefully later on after and have a post-college career. But we also have to be realist and say that, um, you know, we have a 40 man roster and of those 40 guys, a couple might get drafted, you know, so you're looking at a, a very small amount uh, that are going to continue on in baseball. And the majority are, this is going to be the end of the line for them as far as our baseball career. So we want to make that this experience a team experience. And, uh, when you get to a postseason, when you get to a regional, a super regional and, you know, ultimately the college world series, that is going to be the pinnacle of, um, majority of these guys, baseball careers. And what's been your favorite thing so far? I know when we talked about it before the season started, it was, you know, just the, how much you're enjoying it. Uh, but now in games and, and having that experience now in games again, uh, for college baseball, because the last time, you were in a college baseball game. It was a very long time ago and you had 18 years of, of big league baseball and 20 plus years of professional baseball in between that. Uh, what is the big difference that you've just kind of sensed uh, both maybe positive or negative, uh, just being back on the field and involved in a college baseball game setting? Well, it's strange for me just to be like there as a leader, as a coach, not as a player. You know, I was in a dugout for, so many years as a player. And now um, I've realized that even though the game's going on, you're still teaching every single day, every single play, you're still getting these guys through each at bat and how to approach pitchers. And uh, if they make mistakes in the outfield or on the bases, you got to come up to them right away and let them know, Hey, let's correct this. This is the correct way to do it the next time. So it's a constant learning uh, process. And, you know, Willie Coyasso, who is our pitching coach that, you know, he was on the Mets with me when I first, or uh, when he first got called up and I retired in 2007, you know, he looked at me early on and said, listen, you have to assume that these guys know nothing because in the advent of travel baseball nowadays and showcase baseball, the kids are so focused on developing a skill, you know, velocity, how hard can I throw it fast? They run the 60. How fast can I run? batting practice. How far can I hit it? What's my exit velo? These are all metrics that a lot of college coaches look at solely in order to recruit and, you know, draft prospects and scouts are looking at these numbers to draft players solely on these numbers. So we have to really teach them how to play the game of baseball because they really haven't been taught. Um, you know, these travel ball programs, these coaches don't have enough time to really teach them a game of baseball. You're at a tournament every single weekend, you barely practice and they just throw you out there and expect you to know how to do things. And they don't. So that's probably been the biggest surprise is, um, you know, how much, which I love, I mean, I love teaching the game of baseball. So this is perfect for me, uh, to come in here and have to teach them how to play on a daily basis. Well, you guys have some some tough games coming up and it should be pretty fun. I'm excited to to see you all take on a very, very solid UConn team. That program has just really started to heat up over the last few years. And then a, a great rivalry game that if I'm able to get out there during the week, I would love to, which is against Miami, the University of Miami on March 8th. That's Tuesday of next week. That's going to be a lot of fun, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, you can't look past UConn again. Really good three games set there Friday, Saturday, Sunday at home, uh, which, again, I'm, I'm very pumped for. But just a quick peek ahead, just from the uh, component of most of these guys are locals. 
that are on your team. You, you talked about that. You don't really have to go very far to find a lot of talent uh, in South Florida. A, a lot of Miami's team or a lot of Miami's team is local kids. They probably venture out a little bit further, uh, but in general, a lot of, a lot of kids that played against each other through the years. Uh, is that one that you're kind of excited about just in terms of the intensity for how early it is in the season? I'm expecting that one to probably be pretty, pretty fun uh, from both sides and both dugouts. Yeah. That's, you know, the crosstown rivalry. So uh, UM is a storied program that gets uh, a ton of recruits and a lot of the guys that don't end up committing to Miami might come to FIU because it's right across town and it's local. And so a lot of these guys uh, have played against each other. They grew up playing against each other. They know each other well. Um, but it's definitely a, uh, you know, a chip on your shoulder game where FIU wants to take down the big story program of UM every single time. And uh, I think we played twice, uh, one at their place, one at, at our place yep. uh, during the course of two mid midweek games. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. It should be really fun. And, and this is something that we've really been emphasizing on the just baseball side of things is with this lockout, uh, really, there's still baseball going on and there's some really good baseball going on. And we've this is an opportunity for us as a company at just baseball to double down on the approach of covering all aspects of the game. Uh, and I'm honestly, I'm, of course, very, very upset that that there is a lockout. And we're going to talk about that because it's incredibly frustrating. Um for, from the component of just, I love baseball, but also the idea that I started a baseball media company and then COVID then lockout, not the best timing ever. But <laughs> the beautiful thing is we have college ball, which again, is just so awesome. And we got minor league starting up as you know, your son starts to ramp up and a lot of really, really talented players will be playing that are not on the 40 man roster. Uh, if you're a 40 man roster prospect, sorry, no reps for you, which is another really interesting fallout of this whole thing. Uh, before we get into the lockout, I think just the, the proponent of how entertaining college baseball can be. And I thought Al Leiter, I, I, I heard him say this and I thought he put it really, really well. He just said a big reason why he wanted Jack to play at Vanderbilt, just playing college in general, was that you'll never have that kind of energy and purity in baseball. You, you want to stretch that out as much as you can. And in, in his words, he said there was a different level of give a shit in college baseball, right? There's just a different level of care and passion that comes with it. Uh, is that something that you have now seen kind of getting back involved and in? games are now available on ESPN plus where you can, you can fly through your TV and, and go watch random college baseball games and keep up. And I just want to kind of let people know that may not never have dabbled into college baseball, how exciting it can be, how much these kids care and how competitive it can be and how talented a lot of these teams are how much has that really been something that has resonated with you since you've gotten back involved? Well, the, the energy level is, uh, you know, unprecedented when, when you, uh, these guys are on the rail, nobody sits on the bench. Everyone's on the rail, the entire game, they're screaming, uh, either at their opponent or for their own teammates, uh, trying to get them hyped up. And so, for instance, last night we played at the university of South Florida. It's like the eighth inning. They're beating the crap out of us six to nothing. And a guy tries to lay down a bunt. And I looked at Derek Cartaya, who is our assistant coach, who just graduated last year. So he played five years at our program at FIU. And I looked at him, I'm like, all right, do I need to tone it down? Is that college baseball? It's, you know, because if someone in the big leagues has a 6-0 lead, they are not bunting uh, in the bottom of the eighth inning with one inning to go. That is a big no-no. Uh, but he looked at me, he goes, yep, that's college baseball. You play until the last out. And you try to do whatever you can to score as many runs because it can unwind in a hurry. And that is something I've found is like these kids, they play hard to the very end. And, you know, obviously they're not as talented as a professional major league team. They make more errors. Uh, they make more mistakes, both mentally and physically. So big innings can pop up in a hurry. Yeah. And uh, these college coaches know that and know that they're going to do whatever they can to score, no matter what the score is on that big board. Uh, they got a 10 run lead. Well, that might be a little bit off limits, but uh, a six run lead was not off limits last night when they're the one guy tried to bunt and another guy took off running. Uh, it was a six run lead. So I, of course, wanted to go out there and strangle the kid. But no, nope, uh, I was told that that is par for the course. Get get used to it. I bet I bet this year you guys will have a six run comeback at some point. Like, that is very true, though. And in college, well, we almost did. We had we were down seven nothing to the Michigan Wolverines. Yeah, seven nothing. Uh, we came back to seven three. 
they went up eight, three, and then nine, three. And then we came back to nine to seven. They went up 10 to seven. We came back to 10 to nine. Wow. Uh, and unfortunately we ended up losing 15 to nine or 13 to nine, but, uh, you know, we were, we had opportunities to take the lead at, at 10 to nine. So it was a crazy, crazy game. So there you go. You, you got to keep the foot on the gas. So that's, that's the difference too, is a little bit of the, the old school rules that still apply in baseball at the major league level maybe not as much in college. Uh, and that's always an interesting thing as well. And an interesting wrinkle. Uh, speaking of just old school and the approach to major league baseball right now, we, one thing that a tale that is old as time is owners being a tad greedy and players maybe not agreeing with that, but it's just always to a certain point where it becomes almost just too much. And I think we we've hit that point in major league baseball quite evidently uh, now that games have been canceled through the first two series, at least it's probably going to be a little bit more than that. Um, and, and a lot of the big sticking points so far have been the competitive balance tax, which are threshold, which to me is, is interesting because most of these teams aren't even going to sniff that amount, which is of course, just the the soft cap basically, right? You get taxed for every dollar. You are above that. Most teams don't really go above that. The other thing is the pre-arbitration bonus pool, right? And that's for the players that, you know, are, are putting up great numbers. They're not eligible for arbitration yet. They're making the minimum salary um, and they want to have a pool that gets allocated to the top three, 30 players in that you know spot of their experience or years under their belt or lack thereof. Big disagreement there between the players and the owners. And now everybody loses from, from your standpoint, because something that I keep continue to see being peddled as, as a narrative right now is that, the owners, and I think a lot of what they've done is kind of back this up. The, do the owners really care about losing a month of the season in April? You know, from your experience as a player and also in the front office side of things, um, I'm not saying that particularly the ownership that you were a part of didn't care, but just from your understanding of the structure of how MLB front offices work in general now too, it seemed like the owners didn't really care if the first month of the season was going to be delayed with the focus really being on the back end and the postseason expansion. Way more money there that would make up for it more than comfortably. Uh, does it seem like the owners are, are not really that worried in your experience of missing a month of the beginning part of the season? Uh, well, it sure appears that way. Um, it appeared that way in 94 when we went on strike that they were holding steady with uh, their demands. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a, it's just a black eye for baseball in general. You know, the fans want to, get out there and see games and, you know, April 1st of April or 31st of March, whenever that Monday is, is the the start of their baseball season. All the baseball fans want to go out and enjoy it. And uh, this year they're going to be delayed uh, some in doing that. So, and honestly, I don't know if some of the owners even care. Um, I don't know if uh, a lot of them probably aren't even hands-on in their ownership. They own the team, but let somebody else run it. And uh, when they go to these meetings, they just, go along with the status quo or whatever the majority is going to be is like, yep, whatever you guys want, we're fine with it. I don't know. I haven't been in those meetings, so I don't know how uh, boisterous they are in there. If they actually speak out and, and uh, speak their minds about these things, I I don't know. But um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that no work stoppage is glamorous or, um, you know, it's always going to leave a bad taste in the fans mouth for sure. And players and owners, you know, it's, it's a battle and it's like any other industry that goes on strike or has relation or uh, labor relation issues, you know, um, baseball, just because it's a sport doesn't mean that they're immune to that. They're, we're a, a union as well with the players and uh, we're fighting for our rights and fighting for what we believe is fair. And uh, the owners have the right to do the same. What do you have to say for those who, you know, and this is always the very interesting and I think somewhat simple-minded perspective, but it's it's a common one, that they boil it down to millionaires fighting billionaires and they're saying, you're still getting paid millions of dollars to play a kid's game. Like, get over it. Um, you know, what would your reaction to that be or what would your, you know, rebuttal or explanation be to, to the people that do say that? Well, for one... <clears throat> Um, you know, billionaires are billionaires for a reason. They're extremely successful businessmen that have built up a a lot of times a lifetime of, um, success and wealth. And, and they decide to get into the sports franchise area and they, they buy a team. Well, they have every right in the world to continue running a business and make money. 
Um, you know, you look at the professional athlete, these guys are in the big leagues at 23, 24 years old. And I don't think that the majority of fans realize that the average major league career is only four and a half years. Yeah. And most guys do not make millions and millions of dollars. And they're looking for a job by the time they're 27, 28 years old. And if they signed out of high school, they have no other skills in life other than playing baseball and being an athlete. So now they've got to get out there and whatever money they've made uh, is not going to last them the rest of their life. Um, I think that that is a, a thing that most people, if you just stop them and ask them on the street, what the average major league career is, I think most people say 10 years, yeah. everyone plays for 10 years and makes hundred million dollars and they're going to be set for life and they can give all their kids and grandkids everything. Well, that's not the case for a lot of guys. So that's why they're trying to beef up the early years of these guys' contracts. So when they get out of it at three years, four years plus, they have a little bit of something to start their life with. Yeah, I think that's that's the explanation that I was was hoping you would you would say, because I don't think people realize that they're also the years leading up to that. They are are really not making anything like you have nothing saved up when you're working in the minor league or when you're playing in the minor leagues. In fact, you're probably losing money. You're dipping into whatever savings you had. Uh, to well, and, and not everyone's a bonus baby. You know, no. uh, when you get past uh, the 10th round, you're not making a whole lot bonus wise. So you can't fall back on, on a big bonus check. Um, that's reserved for about the first two rounds of any kind of significant money. And then after that, you know, it's a decent chunk, but it's not something that's going to be life altering. What age were you when you hit free agency or were supposed to hit free agency? Um, I was, I came into the league pretty late. So I first got called up when I was 24 and I got hurt came back up again when I was 26 with the Marlins um, or maybe even 27, 27. Um, so I wasn't eligible for free agents. So I was 32. There's a you know, lot of guys years old. Now. There's a lot of guys. And this is why it's such a big topic. It's, it's for the players like yourself that, that come up a bit later, uh, you know, especially that there's relievers for the most part to reinvent themselves. They get up at 32 or, you know, or they, are finally eligible at 32, but they don't get to get paid till that point. I mean, that, that, that's really, really, really frustrating and difficult. Um, and that's a big reason why they're fighting for what they're fighting for. I'm just wanting to get your thoughts real quick on, on this statistic, which I, I thought blew my mind. Uh, MLB revenue between 2012 and 2019 is went up 53%. During that same duration, median salaries decreased from or by 30%. So I'll say that again, because I butchered it from 2012 to 2019 revenue went up 53% for the league in that same time period, median salaries went down 30% for players. I mean, how does that, how are they even able to get away with something like that? And it seems like the, there's no middle class player wise in baseball. It's either we're going to go get the superstar and pay him an egregious amount, which is another thing that I think a lot of outsiders just focus on, or we're going to go use our analytics and we're going to use the, which, which works in a lot of ways, the race do it really effectively and go find a guy that can do the same thing as that five, $6 million dude to play on the minimum. And we're going to go find a diamond in the rough, or we'll go platoon two guys that can do it. Um, do you think that's kind of what has led to this discrepancy here in the lack of middle-class in, in the game? And what do you think? Absolutely. About approach? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we're, we're as a player association, you're trying to elongate, that middle-class guy's career and let him be competitive for a longer period of time where, you know, ownership and, you know, they've got every right to cut costs where they see cost cutting is effective and, and adds to the bottom line. But just as you said, they'll take that guy. That's might be a really great guy in the clubhouse has been a, a journeyman type guy. That's, you know, grinded it out and is a, a serviceable, great average major league player. And they cut them and have them for a young guy that's uh, making far less. Yeah. Um, so I didn't even know those numbers um, until you just read them. So that's, that's pretty alarming uh, when, you know, uh, and that's what we want. I know, I, I don't know a lot, but back in the day when I went through these labor strife, these labor um, issues, it was all about growing the game at a certain rate and us getting compensated at the same rate going with it. So, you know, everybody's benefiting, um, but that's, that's a huge uh, separation right there. Yeah. And that just doesn't seem, seem to be the case. And the, the crazy part too, is in the nineties um, 
I felt like at least at that point you had, you had a little bit less of this issue because you didn't have as much of the guys trying to find or, or teams trying to find diamonds in the rough and replacing those experienced players. We we're seeing the duration of, of careers get shorter and shorter and shorter for that reason. Um, but I was going through a, a lot of the nineties players and there are so many names. I know we, we were talking about Mark Grace in the last episode um, and, and some of the other guys that were a, a bit underrated and I was going through some other players in the nineties that I absolutely was like, wow, I didn't realize this guy was that good. I didn't realize this guy was that good. But then I also, as always, you know, I have to ask you a trivia question about yourself. Um, and I, I think this one, I'd be surprised if you knew this one personally, but how many multi home run games did you have in your career? Um, this is one that I'm gonna I guess uh, 11. 11 is close. Um, it, and it, it's funny because the one thing I want to say before, before I preface it is the other thing I was going to look at was how many four hit games you had, but there was a ton of those. There was a ton of those. I, I, do you even have any, any idea how many four hit games you had? No. It was a lot. How many five hit games do you think you had? Only one. You knew that one. So I knew that one. <laughs> the one. The one instance we'll always remember, but here, here is, let's see what the number is. I forgot it for a second. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine run games. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Do you remember what the one five hit game was? It was in Boston. I remember that. You remember, who, who were you facing? Uh, I'm not sure on that one. <clears throat> <laughs> I thought you would remember that one. Right. Like you have, you have the, uh, an instance where you're going to hit, get five hits. I feel like you'd, the ball is just coming in like a beach ball in those instances. Is it a little bit of luck of just getting the right pitches in the right spots? Are there certain days where you're just seeing it differently? Um, no, I mean, I, you, you, you can go into streaks and be seeing the ball. Great. And like you said, you need a luck. You can't control where the ball is going. So you can hit the ball right on the screws and hit a 115 mile an hour exit velo line drive right at somebody and you're out or you can get sawed off and you're back and shatter into 10 pieces and find a way through a hole or bloop over the second baseman's head for a base hit, you know? So, um, five hit games are, are usually a lot of luck. You're not squaring up five balls in a game normally, you know, to, to get base hits. Some guys have for sure. Um, but I think the majority are you're getting one or two that might be a, a seeing eye ground ball through a hole somewhere. The craziest part about that ball game is you also set another career high in that game. Do you know what it was? Uh, what else could it have been? Um, I don't know. Stolen bases two. really I had two right. swipes in that one. Nice game. So, Five for five with three ribbies and two stolen bases in that ball game. That's that's a game. It's a good day. It's <laughs> a good day at the office. And I, I'm I've got the box score up right now. Um, Manny Ramirez had three hits of his own. Uh, you guys had 19 hits as a team. And I don't know if you know who the. I mean, I don't know. I, well, actually, I do know Hideo Nomo made this. Oh, really? He came out and pitched five innings. Uh, then I've never heard of anybody else, to be honest. Um, Bill <laughs> Pulsifer. 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 Yep. Bill Pulsifer. Yep. Uh, he only went two thirds of an inning, but then, and then there's one other Sun Woo Kim. Remember Sun Woo Kim? Yeah. Went back to the KBO not too long after that. That's the crazy thing is there's so many names from the nineties that, I, I, I got to learn. I got to study up. And that's the best part about this show is I learned more about the nineties than ever, but yeah, Hideo Nomo, one of those guys that peaked at the top and then, you know, fell off kind of quickly at his peak was, was one of the more unhittable guys out there. Right. He threw no hit against us. He, it was against you guys. Yep. How many times were you no hit? Um, I know two for sure. Um, Ramon Martinez, no hit us out in LA. Uh, no moan, no hit us when he was with Boston in Baltimore. Um, I'm trying to think if there was another one. 
And well, I know uh, some memorable one hit games. Clemens one hit us when I was in Kansas city. Uh, Chris Carpenter one hit us uh, in St. Louis one night. He was uh, so good at the peak too. Oh man, those guys were, and Nomo, you wouldn't think that he'd throw a no hitter, you know, um, but he was obviously on that night. Well, at what point do you kind of start to notice that as a team? And does it become almost a self-fulfilling prophecy when you're in the sixth inning? Does everyone start squeezing the bat a little bit harder when you're getting no hit or like thinking about it a bit more? I mean, at what point does that start to set in on the offensive side? People always talk about the pitcher and, and how it sets in for him. But on the offensive side of things, when does that start to set in for you guys of like, oh, shit, we're getting no hit right now? Well, we, you, re, you realize that early on. I mean, when you've gone three innings or four innings with no hits, you know, you got people screaming in the dugout, he's got a no hitter going, let's go break this shit up. And, you know, you start screaming and, and, and ranting about that. So in the dugout, you know, early in the other dugout, they're not saying a word at all because, you know, you don't want to jinx it. You don't want to come up to the pitcher and say, hey, dude, you realize you got a no hitter going? Um, but I don't know if it creates pressure, but. Some guys, you know, it takes a lot of luck to pitch a no-hitter, too. Um, great defense and um, luck because, you, like I said, you don't know where it's going, but some guys absolutely square some balls up and it'll be right at somebody. And then some other day you'll have seven singles that find a way through. It's I remember just, you were uh, talking about on the, on the defensive side of things, probably where it's the most nerve-wracking, right? I mean, um, not necessarily because you can make an error if it's not yeah. a perfect game a perfect game is something different because you don't want to make an error. You don't want to mess anything up there. Um, but for a no hitter, you're, you're ready to make the spectacular play just to give an effort that is extraordinary <clears throat> just because that's happening at that moment. How many were you a part of on the other side? Um, <clears throat> well, Kevin Brown, Al Leiter, um, that might've been the only two that I was uh, a part of as a player. You know, I was, uh, I know the Marlins have had, you know, Annabelle Sanchez, uh, AJ Burnett. Um, uh, when I was working for the team, um, Henderson Alvarez, was Henderson Alvarez. That was one of the craziest ones ever. That's one of the best. I was at that one with my dad and, uh, he was in the on deck circle. I mean, how many no hitters have there been? where the, the final play is with the pitcher in the on-deck circle for a walk-off pass ball uh, to solidify it. I thought that was one of the cooler things. I'm going to say probably zero. That zero, might be the right? only one. <laughs> it's got to be zero. And, and that has to be one of the cooler things. And one of the things that you always say that kind of sticks with me and a prompt that I want to have for the next podcast is you, you had said early on, one of the first episodes we did, that the coolest thing about baseball is that – almost every single time you go out there, there's a good chance you're going to see something you never saw before, no matter how many years you play, uh, no matter how long you've been in the game. Uh, and that's something that I, I could never ask you on the spot, but I, I know there was one instance that you had mentioned, like a pickoff that got thrown into the stands, but I, I want you to th think of for the next episode, five of the like craziest things that you never thought you'd see on a baseball field. Um, and, and I want to see if I can dig those up, dig any of the video up on it. Because that is the craziest thing. You got 162 games. You have you have 30 teams. Um, you have games happening every single day. Odds are just some crazy stuff is going to happen at one point or another, uh, which kind of leads to the point, too, um, to, to circle back real quick before we get into the jersey and the bat. Really quick, I'm curious what your thoughts are on a full 162. Because now we're going to have a shortened season. I'm, I'm just warning you now. It's going to become a topic when they play 130, 140, whatever it is. People are going to say, hey, this still feels like a full season. You know, maybe we shouldn't play 162. We know they want to expand the playoffs. 162 is by far the most of any sport, and it's not close. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the full 162? And then I also want to get your thoughts on expanded postseason. I mean, I don't know. 162 is, is the game that I grew up playing and, and loving. And I, I, I don't see anything wrong with 162. I don't know. It didn't seem too long to me it, it, as a competitor. I, I look forward to going to the ballpark, even to the last day of the season. You know, even when this game was first created, it was what, 156 or uh, they haven't really expanded it much in 150 years. It, it's been that schedule for that long. And um, I just don't see a reason to tinker with it. What about the postseason? In the postseason, um, you know, last year 
was exciting. I thought there was one of the best postseasons uh, in recent memory as far as uh, the series and how close they were and the, the kind of games we, we got to watch. Um, so I'm fine with expanding the eligibility of some teams to get into the postseason. Uh, I hated the one game, you know, the second wild card. They had to play one game to determine their entire, you know, postseason life. The, the 162. Uh, yeah, 162 is determined by one. Yeah, that that to me is uh, a bit harsh. So uh, the one proposal that I saw was 12 teams, the the best teams getting a bye to the second round, which deservedly so. They they were the best teams over 162 games. They should get some type of benefit from that. Um, and then a best of three battling it out to play those teams. And um, I'm I'm in favor of expanded playoffs. I like the best of three idea. I, and I was talking about it with, with our co-host Jack McMullen because Jack understands that perspective, but he loves the desperation of one game, which I get it like the theater of it, right? There there's, there's great theater to it, but I, I don't love the idea of, of one play really being able to determine your entire season because of a one game playoff. And I don't remember if it was, I, I think it was the NLDS where this happened. I don't think it was a wild card game, but you remember the, the outfield fly with the Braves. I don't know if you remember that where it was, it was oh. ruled an infield fly, but it was like yeah. 30 feet in the outfield. Talk about something you've never seen before. That was another one I'd never seen before. Um, and, and that really cost them their season. I don't remember if it was the NLDS, but if, imagine if that happened in a wild card game. I mean, well, we almost saw it last year where the Cardinals got super hot, <clears throat> end up leapfrogging everybody to get in that second wild card spot. And they almost pulled off an upset of a 105 win Dodger team. And it came down to the very last couple innings. And if that would have been, wow, what a huge blow to get the Dodgers out of there in that one game. In one game. The Giants, you know, had this miracle season where they won a couple more games. And and uh, remarkably, the Los Angeles Dodgers were a wildcard team at 105 wins. Well, now I wasn't actually planning on talking about the Giants, but we talked about them so much during, during the, the season. They are going to return a lot of guys, but some of them are older. We talked about how difficult it is even to wrap our heads around how good they were, but they, they do a lot of things really well. They put guys in positions for success. Buster Posey retires. Um, that is just one guy, but that is one guy that is you know potentially a hall of famer. That's, you know, people are debating that I, I the body of work thing versus how good you were at your peak. That's a whole different discussion. Uh, but just in general, a guy that was one of the best catchers in the game and, and that we've seen in a very, very long time. And now he's, he's out of there. It's one player, but it's one player, arguably one of the most important, if not the most important position. How much does that change things for the Giants? They did lose a few other pieces too, but how important is, I know you always talk about the team concept, but <clears> having a catcher like that, I mean, you kind of saw it with Pudge in 03 with the Marlins, uh, although that was that was a team that was kind of all together from every facet. Like how important is having that commanding catcher and, and how much do you think the Giants will struggle to fill that void uh, with a young guy? Is that even, is that something that's way more than meets the box score? Oh, hundred percent. You know, you can replace Buster Posey right now on the field um, with some young talent or some young stud you get from your organization or trade or whatever, but the presence that he commands and the leadership he gives in that clubhouse is going to be very difficult to replace. Um, and you can't put a price on that. And it's gone. Uh, the Cardinals are going to be facing that same uh, thing at the end of this year when Yadier Molina retires after being uh, 20 plus years in the Cardinal uniform. And to take that presence out of that locker room uh, is going to be a big blow to that team and that organization, um, both on the field and off the field, mostly off the field, because that guy is a leader. I was going to say, we haven't talked too much about Yadi. How much, how much cross, how much crossover did you have with him? Maybe a couple years before you retired. Did you, uh, did you have much of an experience of being able to see Yachty up close and just kind yeah. of the way he does things? What stood out to you with the way Yachty was and his way, the way he approached the game on and off the field? He just had, for me, just had like a, a calming presence uh, with that pitching staff. You know, the Cardinals traditionally have uh, a very talented pitching staff, but you could tell that Yachty was always in control and I mean, the guy caught 150 games every year. You know, you, most catchers, uh, starting catchers on most teams, you know, they're catching 110, 120 games. Uh, the way that he went out there every single day and caught that number of games uh, was just remarkable. And you could tell he just um, had good working relationships with all the pitchers. 
and uh, called a great game. And, and obviously a defensive whiz behind there added some offensive punch uh, in huge clutch situations. And that's going to be a big piece that they're going to miss. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy that he's still going him and Wayno. I, I can't imagine. I hope they can find a way to make it work where that final home game is Wayno pitching to Yachty. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, I couldn't imagine what the tickets would be going for for that. Uh, but let's get to, we have two cool things today uh, to unveil, uh, especially for our folks who are watching on YouTube. Uh, first is a gift from our friends at Pillbox Batco, who did an awesome job. Brett is the man, and he was super excited to get your reaction on, on this bat. Um, you've sneaked a tiny peek at it, but I, now you get to see the whole thing. Uh, can you pull it out and, and show off this custom back yeah. pillbox back? Co- there was a lot of decision-making that went into this. Um, and for those that want to see it, guess what? We are actually going to give away another one of these. So for the Marlins fans out there that are interested, check out on social media on just BB media on Twitter. And here's, yeah. here's the, you got it. It is super cool. Oh man. Look at that. I mean, Look at that. Got my name. And on this side, it's a two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, 1995 All-Star MVP. Jeff Conan, Mr. Marlin's got my signature on it. It's just a really cool. And there's the pillbox logo. And this, you know, you've seen my room up here. And obviously, uh, this is going to make a great addition to (laughs) my, uh, my memorabilia up here in this room. Man, I, it, it, what I really liked is just the detail on it. And, and that was fantastic. Cause Brett, I, you know what, for an ash bat, I want to take it on the field. I mean, look at the grains <laughs> in this thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I was saying. It's like, like a solid piece of wood too. <laughs> well, we're actually giving one away. Um, they made us three. One is for our office, um, which that one's not getting given away. Uh, but then we are also going to do another one where you can check it out on just BB media on Twitter. We'll have more information in the coming days to be given that one away. Uh, but really excited. I think Marlins fans would love to have that as well. Um, but yeah, they killed it with that thing. And uh, that's Brett really super job. cool. So I'm glad you liked it. I know I was, I was like, okay, I'm really eager to see how it comes out. Um, I kept getting texts like did Niner get it yet? And I'm like, I, I don't think so. He's traveling uh, the, the box. I don't know if it's there yet, whatever. And then, um, you know, then I was super excited once we found out it was in there and you can check out, they do so many different, amazing custom bats over at Pillbox, uh, and definitely check out their website. They do so many awesome things. We met them at the all-star game in Denver, um, ironically, which is, you know, where you hit 900 for your career. Um, you know, just <laughs> that place. saw that exactly. Right. Love that place. And now that ended up being the origins of where you got this awesome gift. So a uh, big thanks to them out there and uh, keep it. Yes. Very good. Thank you very much. Go box. <laughs> yeah. They, they're very going to be very amped to, to get your reaction on that one. And now I have to guess what your Jersey is. It's white. Okay. Cardinal. All right. We got a Cardinal white Cardinals Jersey. Which I like, think one of the coolest jerseys in baseball. I love not Ozzie Smith. You like the Cardinals jersey as much as much as any in baseball. I, I like them a lot. I, I like, like the Cardinals on both sides of the bat. Yeah, it, it is an underrated jersey. I agree with that one. I still got to get out to that stadium. I got to get there. I got to get to Kansas City. We still got to go to Kansas City at some. You're gonna love it. Kansas City's awesome. Wait. I can't wait. PNC, and then I also have Cleveland, Cincinnati. But okay, what is this? What is what? What years? Can you give me like a like an era? My years. I played. I played against this guy. It's not Ozzy Smith. Nope. We did Ozzy. Your years. A lot to choose from. There's a lot of great players in the Cardinals organization when I when I played against them. That's what's killing me. Um, Can you give me like a position or infield? Infield infielder I, I, I don't even know where to guess like I don't even know where to start oh, gosh this is gonna this is gonna drive me nuts infield you got any hint because it's not it can't be like Stan usual <laughs> so it, it's um I will say that uh he made his 
biggest, not biggest, but initial impact with another organization. So like Lance Berkman. Nope. Good guess though. Really good guess. He could play. What an infielder though. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I was like, maybe I forgot he played another position. There's another overrated or underrated player is Lance Berkman. That guy was stud. That guy could hit from both sides. Yeah. Such a nice swing. Yeah, I was going to say overrated. Jeff's just firing from the hip right now. Way underrated. Way underrated. I agree. Talked about enough. I'm going to have to throw in the towel on this one. Well, he's been um, talked about a lot uh, on the Hall of Fame ballot. Oh, damn it. Scott Rowan. Scott Rowan. Damn. Why didn't I think of that? He was good. Slacker. Damn it. That just ruined my day again. Um, <laughs> damn. That, that's one that I, I literally wrote an article making his Hall of Fame case. Um, Rowan is a guy that I feel like. I could see very, being very similar to your, I, I could be totally off because I never met the guy in my life, but I never, I feel like I never heard anything about Roland. Seemed like he was kind of the guy that just, just put his head down and went to work every day. Was was that the same thing that you kind of experienced with him? If I could have eight Scott Rollins on my team, I would really. Yeah. He was that kind of uh, just no nonsense. He hits a home run. He runs the bases. He plays hard. He'll tag you hard. He'll slide in hard, but he's fair. I mean, this guy was, was just a, a great gamer baseball player. How impressive was the defense at third? Did you ever get to Oh, ridiculous. I mean, the guy was – if it was hit to him, you're out, basically. There there were guys like that, right, where when you hit it, uh, you're not – like, you're, you're not even really thinking about – you could chop it into the ground. Normally, you'd bust it down the line. You still know you're kind of – you have no shot. Yeah, Arenado is the same way. Uh, Marquise Grissom, uh, Andrew Jones in center field was when yeah. the ball went up in the air to center field, you're like – Damn it. I'm, tur- I'm taking a right turn back to the dugout. That's all there is to it. W- would that ever get in your head a little bit at the plate? Cause it's not like you can aim where you're hitting it, but just knowing that if you square sure. one up to center field, it's probably not falling. Like yeah. you think, you're almost thinking I, I got to hit it hard on a line. Yeah. I mean, on a line he's played shallow, so he'll get that. And then if there's too much air underneath it, he's going to run it down and get that. It was just uh, frustrating. So frustrating <laughs> uh, knowing that that's out there waiting for you. So last thing I wanted to ask you on the, on the topic of the Braves, I, I saw a video from Pitching Ninja and he does a great job of just, you know, digging up some really awesome pitches and whether it's, you know, as they're happening or in the past, he was showing two seamers from Greg Maddox. How did anybody hit that ever? Ever? Well, not many ever. people did. Well, it looked um, like a lefty. I don't know how I did. I mean, I, I hit well against him. I think my, I had a over 300 average against Maddox, my career, but it's uh, it was literally like, you're probably too young to remember trackball. It was a game you played in the backyard. It had like a, a curved um, basket almost, almost like a highlight cesta. Yeah, yeah. And it had like a, a styrofoam ball. And inside the, the curved thing had like little tracks, like um, almost like, like a cog in a wheel, you know, like. So when you threw it, it gripped the ball and it would make insane movements in all kinds of directions. <clears throat> And whenever I see one of his, you know, I've seen this, you know, these pitches you're talking about. And I mean, it looked like we call it, you know, a, a track ball. You like throw it and just like the way it moves is it's, it physically doesn't look possible for a baseball to move that much. What's your approach? Like, what, what, what are you thinking there? When, when you have a you're hoping, that's going snaking towards you. Well, you got to get it up for one, because all of his pitches were, would move down in the strike zone his his sinker and his cutter and his change up and curveball everything moved down. So you tried to elevate whatever you could because, you know, his swing and miss rate on balls or weekly putting balls in play was off the charts. You know, he'd throw 80 pitch complete games because guys would just, he'd miss barrels all day long. And uh, he had some insane years. I mean, insane years. Yeah. So that now we have two topics for the next podcast. Another topic I want from you uh, is I want you to build a pitcher with the five best pitches that you've seen, right? So best fastball, uh, best curveball, best slider, best change up and build the ultimate pitcher. Uh, that's, that's next too. So right. we have two of the topics for next episode. This one, I really wanted to get as much of your thoughts on FIU uh, in the lockout as possible. Uh, so by the time we have the next episode, I will have seen you guys play in person. Um, I'll see you in your element coaching. 
all right. What's the over under in your collegiate career? You think of being tossed? I'm going to put it at 0.5. Would you take the over or under in your career as a coach of being tossed? What's 0.5 mean? Like zero means the under hit one means the over hit. So how many times am I going to get thrown out? Yeah. Your collegiate career. You only got tossed in your big league career once, right? Yeah. Once. No, it'll be, I'm taking the uh, over on that. You think you're going to get tossed? Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? You think there's just a different level of, of, I, Different I, level of badness out there that is going to require some shouting. Oh, well, now I'm much more excited to go to games. If I catch a game where you get tossed. Our head coach, uh, Marvell Melendez, has said to me how much he appreciates me in the dugout because he doesn't have to say everything now because I'll do my little chirping over on the side there when they make bad calls. So he doesn't have to. So we're kind of a two pronged attack <laughs> and he's definitely going to get thrown out. Oh, so 100%. I, yeah. I had had the pleasure of meeting Merville and and he's, he's an awesome, nice guy, but you know, you got to be intense and you can see that intensity in him. You know, the love he has for the Oh, he gets fired up and I could see, I I could see him getting tossed. Uh, But I'm definitely looking forward to the episode we have after you get tossed because (laughs) that'll be a good one, but uh, that'll do it for today's uh, I'm going to lose some sleep over, over Scott Rowland, especially because I think he actually is going to be a hall of famer. seems like he's trending in the right direction with all of these steroid guys kind of falling off the ballot. You got to vote for somebody and and Rowland has the body of work. And you talk about the, the things off the field and the relationships and just being, you know, a good rep of the game. Uh, So that's another one that, you know, in that Jersey collection just seems to be, aging well for you that more and more of these guys in your Jersey collection are, you know, turning into hall of famers. And, uh, but now you can add this pillbox bat up there. I'm excited to see where it fits into this awesome collection for those who oh, want wait, I got a spot actually. Right. Right. Oh, money. I see it right over here. I can <laughs> with the Scott Rowland. <laughs> Boom. There it is. There it is. Love it. And for those who are wondering and watching on YouTube, yes, Jeff does put the computer on a ping pong table to record these. (laughs) Um, Oh, shoot. And I just remembered another topic for the next episode. I don't believe that people actually complete Ironman challenges, the Ironman races. I don't believe that they actually happen. So I'm going to need some sort of proof because I did the whole breakdown of 26.2. Then I, I see it and I still don't believe that it's humanly possible. I see your, your Iron Man um, like frame and, and the shirt, or what would you call that? Like the, the race jersey. I, I don't even know. But yeah. Whatever it is. There's no way I couldn't do one leg of that in a week. So I, we're going to talk about that one <laughs> next time too, uh, but that'll do it for this episode. Next time we talk, Jeff will have maybe been tossed from the Yukon series uh, and we'll have a lot more updates on hopefully some positive developments on the lockout side and some of these topics we teased Uh, Jeff, any final thoughts? Looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to getting tossed. I'm looking forward to (laughs) seeing you this weekend at uh, UConn, putting a hurting on what's their mascot. I don't even know what the Huskies Huskies. All right. Maybe I'll get tossed. Hey, fans get tossed. It's on the bucket list. I'll tell you that. All All right. We will talk to you next week.